the questions of Jesus. And last week we looked at, what do you want? It's a big question. What do you want? What do you want out of this life? What do you want from Jesus? Today we're going to look at the question, do you understand what I have done to you? It's very interesting. The gospel is something that's done to us by Jesus. It's something that Christ does to us. And if you come to this passage and you just get the surface, surface value of this passage, you're going to think that you're just getting an example from Jesus. You're going to think that you're just getting something to model. And just in first reading, you might think that Jesus is just giving us a good example of humility or servanthood or sacrifice or leadership. And if you just get from this passage thinking that this is just an example to follow or just a model to walk behind, you're going to miss this glacier-sized question that Jesus asked. Do you know what I've done to you? His example is pointing us to a cosmic-sized love that God has for us. It's very similar to the sacraments in this way, that there's, a, there's something greater going on than just an example. There's something greater going on than just Jesus modeling for us. It's pointing to this greater, this massively deeper meaning. This question, do you understand what I've done to you? This massively deep thing changes everything if we understand it. If you really understand what Jesus has done to you, it changes everything. It changes your posture as you walk through this world. It changes how you interact with people and how you do relationships. It changes how you handle success and how you handle failure. It changes how you lead and how you shepherd and how you care for people. It changes how you deal with suffering and tragedy. And more than anything else, if you, if you really understand what Jesus has done to you, it changes how you worship God. It changes how you love your fellow man. If you understand what Jesus has done. There's only two kinds of people in the world we live in. There's David Robinson kind of people, and there's Michael Jordan kind of people. Some of you may not know who those names are. Between those two guys, they won nine NBA championships. David Robinson played for the Spurs, Michael Jordan for the Bulls. Jordan, probably the greatest player to ever play the game. Both of them were inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame in 2009, and both of them gave an induction speech. David elevated others. He recognized his family and his friends. He was brief and he was humble. He honored God and realized that his legacy was not basketball, but his children. And at the beginning of his speech, he looks at his boys that are sitting down here on the front row and he goes through each one of them and he tells them why he loves them and he tells them what they're good at. And then he looks at his wife and he says, you're my rock. And I could have never done it without you. 
Just humility upon humility upon humility. Thanking those who had gone before him, grateful to those who had walked with him, and life-giving and encouraging to those who would come after him. Then Michael Jordan got up and gave his speech. Self-elevated, recognized only himself. Indulgent, proud, honored basketball, seen his legacy as his highlights, and then he looked at his boys and he said, I'd hate to be you. I'd hate to be you. I've done to you. Boy, he said it just had grown and grown and grown in his heart. I'd ask you, do you know what Jesus has done to you? The setting of our passage here is the Passover. That's where we're at, the Passover. And it's one of three celebrations that the Jews would celebrate annually. And this particular one was to celebrate and remember the great work that God had done in setting His people free from the Egyptians in 400 years of slavery. And it was a celebration of all celebrations. And many historians would say the city of Jerusalem would swell to six times its size. I have a good picture of that because not too long ago I went out to Sturgis, South Dakota to Bike Week and a town of 25,000 goes to a town of 350,000. So the preparations for the Passover were painstaking. They had to build new roads and bring in bridges and they had to do all kind of things. It was the feast of all feasts and the celebration of all celebration. But for Jesus... It was no festival to be observed, but rather one that he would be at the center. Jesus was at the end of his time here on earth. You can imagine his thoughts as he went to the temple and he saw the lambs crucified and the blood pouring out. His last Passover. And to realize that he was the lamb I can imagine just his knowledge of the Scriptures that Isaiah 53, 3-8 probably came rushing into his mind that he was despised and rejected by men and a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions and He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray and we have turned every one to his own way and the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and He was afflicted, yet He opened not His mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. Jesus knew that his disciples would need something deeper. They would need something deeper than just an example to follow to get them through His void and His absence. 
verse 1, it says that having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. When you come to the end of this world, or you think you come to the end of this world, you want to gather those who are the closest to you, those you love the most, and you want them to know how much you love them and what they mean to you. And that's what we see here with Christ as he has his disciples, and he knows it's the end for him, and he knows that it's the end for which he is called, and he gathers his closest friends to him, and he wants them to understand the deep, abiding love. Jesus realizes that they need more than an example to follow, that they need more than commands to obey, more than a pep talk or an attaboy to get them through the road that lies ahead. He understands that they'll need a deeper experience of God's love and a deeper understanding of what Christ has done to them. There is nothing more important in the Christian life than to understand God loves you. There's nothing more important in the Christian life than to understand that you have the Father's smile. No one knows that better than Lisa Nicole Brennan. Probably most of you won't even recognize that name unless I put the name Jobs on the end of it. She was born in 1978 to Steve Jobs, founder of Apple. Couldn't have been born into a better family, right? There's just one small problem. Steve never wanted his daughter. Three days after his birth, a friend of his had to practically beg him to get him to go see her. While he was there, he helped pick out the name Lisa. He actually named a computer project called the Apple Lisa after her, and shortly after, he denied publicly that she was his daughter. He even went so far as to get his team of experts to come up with this local integrated systems architect just because he didn't want to acknowledge that she was his. Even after DNA testing, he denied that she was his daughter. And you'd think after all that, the little girl at nine still wanted her father's name. Wow. How we need to know the father's love. I met a little girl a month or two ago. She was broke down on the road and I stopped to help her and she had a tattoo written on her arm and it said, ain't nobody going to tell me I'm not beautiful. And I just said, does that tattoo have a story? She's like, yeah, it does. I said, would you mind just telling me your story? She says, well, I've always had a low self-esteem in life and sort of feel like everyone thinks down on me and I just write that there to remind myself that I'm lovely. Right? We all need the Father's love. We need to know that God sees us and He loves us. My brother Keith, he wouldn't mind me sharing this, but he's a rugged, sort of tough kind of guy. 
sort of looks like somebody that would probably hang out in the bars a lot. And his real dad's never been there. And even at 46, if you saw him, you'd think, this guy's a bad dude. And he still can't come to grips with, why did my dad not ever love me? See, Jesus is trying to help us understand something much deeper when he asks us the question, do you understand what I've done to you? You see, God's love comes to us at our worst. When God has every right to rebuke us and every right to abandon us, every right to strike us with His wrath, He hikes up His robe, right? In the story of the prodigal, and He runs to the sun that's been in the pigsty. You see, when this occurs in the Scriptures, if you were to look at the account in Luke chapter 22, you would find out that the disciples, they're arguing about who's the greatest. Jesus is going to die for them. He's going to pour out His blood, and they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. The Father's love comes at us and comes to us at our worst. You know, God's love is so relentless sometimes that it causes God to relent of His judgment. Think about that. God's love is so relentless that sometimes God relents of His judgment. You have that in the book of Jonah. Lisa Nicole Brennan, Ray Cortez says, her whole life shaped by a father who never wanted her. But we, church, we, our whole lives shaped by a father we should have never had. By a dad we should have never had. Do you understand what I've done to you? Not are you like, not, not, not are you like Jonah, rattling off good theology and all the right answers. But have you tasted the kindness and the mercy and the love of God like the prostitute who weeps over Jesus' feet and wipes them with her hair? You see, Jonah, he knew the right answers, but he really didn't understand what Jesus had done to him. But the prostitute, she did. And it changed everything. You know, one of the neat things about this passage, I won't say much about verse 2, but some of God's most glorious displays of His love take place in the darkest of times, right? Satan's plotting Jesus' betrayal and God's plotting the salvation of the world. That's how it is sometimes in our life, right? There's a lot of cold, dark, but there's going to be a hallelujah. It may not be in this world. There's a hallelujah coming for God's church. And if you're suffering and struggling, there's a hallelujah coming for you too. It's the parable of the weeds. It's the parable and the story of Job, right? Satan's at work, but God is at work too. It says, Jesus, knowing and understanding that the Father had given all things into His hands, 
And he had come from God and was going back to God. He rose from the supper and started washing feet. See, when you understand who you are and you understand where you've come from and you understand where you're going, you can embrace the call that God has on your life, even if it means washing feet. At a time when Christ, the God of the universe, think about it, He's light of very light, God of very God, creator and sustainer of all. He should have been being worshipped and honored and exalting. It's the Passover. He's the Passover lamb. He should have been getting inducted into the Hall of Fame, but He's not. He's rising to wash feet. Any Jew knew that to wash feet was the humiliating job of the slave, the Gentile, but not the Jew. Not the Jew. And in this small act of service and sacrifice, we have so much more than an example to follow. We have the depth of the Gospel. Because at another time in history, eternity past, Jesus rose from His throne. He laid aside His glory. And He took on the loincloth of human flesh. And He did that not to wash us with the waters of baptism, but to wash us with the blood that He would pour out at His humiliation. Do you understand what I've done to you? How we understand that question changes everything. George Washington Carver, first generation slave, first generation slave, think about that. His mom was lost. Him and his mom were kidnapped by these raiders that came through from Arkansas. And his slave master thought so much of the family that he went and rescued them, but the mom didn't make it. But he, he got George and he adopted him as his son and raised him as his son. And George Washington Carver, if you guys know anything about him, became one of the greatest minds of our country. He probably saved the South agriculturally single-handedly as he learned how to put nitrogen back into the soil as much of the cotton crops would take the nitrogen out. And George learned that sweet potatoes and peanuts would put nitrogen back into the soil. He's a brilliant, brilliant guy. And George says he came to know Christ when he was nine and he was up in the loft of some barn. And he said, I have a real simple testimony. God just came to me and that was it. I'd been his ever since. But one of the things that George Washington Carver understood, he understood that everything had been given into his hands by God. And he understood that he had come from God. And he had understood that one day he'd go back to God. And he understood what Jesus had done to him. And it changed everything to the point where he turned down two jobs, one from Henry Ford, the other from Thomas Edison, making six figures. 
He went back to Tuskegee University making $1,500 a month because he said, God has called me to educate my people so they don't go from dependency on a plantation to dependency on the government. And George did all that. You know why? Because he understood what Jesus had done to him. Verse 6 through 11. It's all about Peter, right? Impulsive, jumping with both feet, Peter. Rush forward without thinking, Peter, right? Rebuking the God of the universe, <laughs> Peter. I'll lay down my life for you before denying Christ three times, Peter. Are you going to wash my feet, Lord? And he goes on to say, never to eternity are you going to wash me, Jesus. And Jesus says, Peter, if I don't wash you, you don't have any part with me. But let's be fair to Peter, right? Peter understood that only slaves washed feet in his day. Before you judge Peter and before you judge Michael, we're a lot like Peter. We're a lot like MJ. That's what they called him, Michael Jordan. Struggling to give Jesus our shame, right? Battling to open our hands and receive the gift of God's unmerited favor. Resistant to the sacrifice of Jesus. We're so much like those sailors in the book of Jonah, right? Jonah says, look, just sacrifice me and throw me in. And they're not willing to depend on the sacrifice. That's too easy. So they go back to trying to save themselves. And God's like, oh no, there's no salvation in self. You see, we're the same way. We want to get there through self-effort. Not willing to bring our shame and our embarrassment to Christ. Peter's refusal to be washed wasn't noble. It was foolish. It was foolish. You see, church, unless God bears our shame and our dishonor, we have no part in Him. Unless we bring our uncleanliness and our shame to Christ, we can't be a disciple. We can't be loved by Him. There's a great picture of this in the book of Hosea and Gomer, right? And Hosea is told by God to go pick a prostitute for his wife, and he goes and gets her. And then she leaves and goes out and gets into prostitution again, and Hosea has to go get her. Well, every time Hosea has to go get her, who's burying her shame? Hosea, right? He's the one that's got to go and get her off the auction block. And every man there is saying, he's taking her back? I've been with her. I've been with her. You see, that's the gospel. If Jesus doesn't take our shame, we have no part in him. And we all know that we're just like Gomer. We're going, we go back. And we go back. And you know what Jesus does? He comes and he gets us off the auction block every time. And he says, I've already bore all his shame. I've already bore all her shame. Do you understand what Jesus has done 
to you. See, if you don't come like the tax collector, beating your chest, unable to look up at God, and you come like the Pharisee, looking inward, you don't get it. Sometimes we're like the, the nobles in the movie Braveheart, right? We're squabbling like the disciples for the scraps from Longshank's table. We're squabbling over the scraps of the table of this world, causing us to miss God's right to something better. See, church, Christ came so that we could be free from self-justification. And every day we run right back to it. What we need to understand is we're not, the church is not a waiting room for a job interview. But it's a hospital full of sick and wounded. Desperately in need of Christ's touch. We're lepers. We're not just lepers on the outside. We're lepers on the inside too. And we need Jesus to see us. You see, at the end of David Robinson's speech, he told the parable of the lepers in Luke 17. You guys know the story. There's ten lepers and they see Jesus and they cry out from afar and Jesus tells them to go show themselves to the priests and he heals them all. Only one comes back. Only one. And he falls down at Jesus' feet and he worships. And he worships. And he worships. See, all ten are healed, but only one understands what Jesus has done to him. Church is a lot like that TV show, This Is Us. How many of you have seen that? Seen that little show? Sort of a funny little group, right? A little group that doesn't even look like they sort of fit together, and they got all kind of problems, man. They got more problems than you can... Church is a lot like that. If we want to be a community that loves one another when we're not lovable, and we want to be a community that gets down into the pig sty, into the pig mess with one another and lifts one another up, if we want to be a community that covers up one another's shame, right? We don't, we don't bring to light one another's shame, but we cover one another's shame. If we're ever going to be that kind of community, church, it all starts with the question, do you understand what Jesus has done to you? You see, you can't love one another like that if you don't understand what Jesus has done to you first.
There's nothing more joyful than to understand the gospel and then to give the gospel to others. That's what verse 17 says as we close. If you know these things, blessed or happy are you if you do them. Ben and I have one job here, just one job at CRC, and that's it. For one, me and him need to answer and ask each other every day, do you understand what Jesus has done for you? And then Ben and I need to make sure that our wives and our children understand what Jesus has done to you. And then we need to make sure that our church, Christ Church, understands what Jesus has done to you. And if we do that, and we get it, this whole city will be changed. Let's pray.